Hello, and welcome to the Proximity Process Podcast. This is Matt Anderson. I'm so glad you're joining the conversation. Today's guest, Sarah Winograd. And I'm excited to bring you this conversation because Sarah's right at the beginning of building a new organization called Together With Families. And so I've known Sarah for a few years. What I've come to appreciate about her is that she's guided by the bottom line needs, wants, desires of the people she serves, and she's uncompromising about it. I think this is how she stays in right relationship with people. What I've also come to see in Sarah and in others is that this approach, it often runs up against the constraints of existing organizations. The program, services, mission, priorities of organizations are not always aligned with people's needs. In fact, what we can see is that services we offer can add burden, stress, and even harm to the people they're meant to serve. I've come to see this as a transactional approach. We provide what we have to give. I see what Sarah does as relational. We do what is in service of people as defined by those people. Now, to give a little backstory of how Sarah got to where she is today, let me start by saying a few years ago, Sarah decided to start a resource center as a program within an existing organization. The Resource Center was simply going to meet parents' concrete needs, addressing issues of poverty as a way to keep kids out of foster care. Sarah was having a lot of success, but as she went deeper into her relationships with parents, she came to understand that meeting people's basic needs, it's not what matters most. She realized that to do what families need, she had to build with them. She had to hire families, she had to speak truth with families, and she had to stand against the harms and injustices that they were experiencing. So what Sarah decided to do is what many of us decide to do, stop, to leave. She decided to take the leap to become unconstrained by an existing organization and to build something from the ground up with the people she serves. So I hope that gives you just a little bit of context about Sarah, but just to be clear, starting her own organization was not an easy decision. I never wanted to lead an organization. It was not my desire at all. But what I've come to learn is that the vision and the mission that I have, that I've taken from the families we serve, it's their vision, that can't be realized anywhere except for in our own organization. So so say more about that. Like what was being provided to parents in your experience and, and what was being missed, what was not being provided that, that they needed? Unfortunately, here in Georgia, what's provided is a menu of items that don't address the issues that our families are really dealing with. So everyone gets a parenting class. Everyone gets drug testing, even if they're not on drugs. But when it comes to if you're working, you know, 60 hours a week or you're working 50, 40 hours a week and you're making $14 an hour and you're working DoorDash on the weekends with your kids to supplement that income and somebody comes and they're like, hey, I know you're struggling to get housing and you're really struggling with childcare for your youngest child who has a disability. And so we're going to come and help you and we're going to give you these parenting classes twice a week. And we're going to give you counseling because you're obviously in distress. If you can't find housing, 
If you can't provide for your kids, then we can take your kids from you and we can pay strangers room and board to take care of your children. So this is what our parents are hearing. And they're like, no, thank you. They're saying, well, that parenting class would be great if I could have first housing. That parenting class, like maybe it would help me address the needs of my child who has a disability if I first had food. Like none of us would be a good parent if we have no place to sleep and we're sleeping in the backseat of our car and the air conditioning's off. I'm barely a good parent and I live in a really big house and I have all the resources in the world. So like, of course, we're not going to be good parents under that kind of stress. So I, I remember being... In in Georgia, visiting you last year, we were talking to a, a mom that you were working with, and I remember her telling me that she was going to AA. Her kids were in foster care, and she was going to AA. And I asked her, I said, "Well, and we we you know we were had been joking around, and so I felt comfortable doing this." But I I said kind of jokingly, "Are you an alcoholic?" <laughs> and she said, "No." And and I said, "Do you drink?" And she said, "No." And I said, so why do you go to AA? And she said, well, it's just another thing I can put on the compliance checklist. It's it's something I mm-hmm. can do so that that the system doesn't have any reason to keep my kids from me. Here's a woman that, that loves her kids. She was dealing with housing issues and employment issues that she was working on. But now she has all these other responsibilities tacked on that are not actually meeting any need, problem, want, desire that she has. And the system is burdening her rather than helping her. As I've gotten to know your work, that's what becomes visible is this mismatch between what the system offers and what people actually need. So how can I, as one person, Sarah, help people meet some of those needs so they can get their kids back and be a family again? And you were doing that, right? Doing it well. And then... Matt, we were doing everything. We were doing everything. So we were going from home repairs for families who needed home repairs, extermination for families who needed extermination, providing financial assistance, coming out of the pockets of neighbors and friends, money, providing childcare, helping families get into housing, delivering items to families. You know, we ended up with like 100 volunteers, just people networking and working to solve and and address the needs of our families and then also provide them with the community and the support that they want Mm. and need in order to thrive. So you're organizing a community to rally around basic, concrete, economic and social support needs that families caught up in the child welfare system had. It raises the question of why did the community have to step in and why aren't these, if these are the needs that parents have that are keeping them from their kids, why aren't our systems meeting those needs? I believe the reason the system's not meeting those needs is because our policymakers believe a lie. And they believe that our families and our parents deserve to lose their kids, that everything is being done to keep their kids in the home and that they've gotten chance after chance after chance to keep their kids and they failed over and over Mm. again and that their children are truly unsafe being in their home and that these are not good people. These children should be in the homes of strangers. And so our policymakers actually believe a lie or they don't know the truth. I was asking a friend of mine who does lobbying. I said, do we have like a lobbying group here in Georgia where it's parents who are impacted by the child welfare system lobbying for the change that they need to see in order for their families to thrive? And she's like, well, we have an advisory council, you know, of birth parents and foster parents, but not what you're talking about, Sarah. No, we don't have something where it's just truly the parents who are getting their kids snatched up advocating and telling their stories. And so 
the only story you're hearing are you have foster parents, uh, you have foster care providers, and they're on Capitol Hill and they're telling our policymakers sometimes these horrible stories like this psychopath mom who, who tried to drown her kids or something, and they saved the child, and now the child's adopted and thriving and, and happily ever after. And they're not telling the stories of all of our teenagers, 25%, who are ending up with disrupted adoptions and sent back into the state. They're not telling the stories of kids who are abused in foster care. They're not telling the stories of the parents who lost their kids to foster care because of poverty, not because they were bad parents. And then their kids are experiencing so much trauma and hardship in foster care. Taxpayers are paying for that when they could have been paying to help the family. So these are the stories that they're hearing. Yeah. There's a narrative that's prevailing right now that says foster care is right and it's necessary because we're keeping kids safe. And you're seeing a very different story on the ground. You're seeing a truth that is different from that narrative, which is that families love one another. They want to be together. Parents love their children. There's an injustice happening because of this false narrative. Okay, so I'm going to jump in here for a minute and just fast forward the story. Sarah is seeing the experience of parents clearly, which is that what they need, want, desire, it's not what the system is providing. What she wants to do is build with families to not only meet those basic needs, but hire, organize, advocate with parents for the changes they want to see happen. And she's starting to realize that the only way to do this is to build something new. But she wasn't sure if she was ready or if she would have the team that would support the vision. But fortunately, her friend Andell issues her this challenge that becomes the tipping point moment. Let's pick up the conversation there. He's like, okay, let me give you a little piece of advice. I want you for two weeks to be completely unafraid of any consequences and do what you know is right. Yeah. Just for two weeks. And then come back to me and let's follow up. So I go, I'm sitting, I'm like, what do I know? Well, I know it's right that I can't stay here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know it's right that I have to leave because our parents are telling me that they need something that I can't provide while I'm here. And that something that they need is the core component of what we need to be doing for our families. And what was that core component? The core component of it is really elevating the voices of our families and fighting for justice alongside them, whatever that might look like. And then to speak their truth. And if it means saying ripped apart, it means saying ripped apart because that's exactly what it feels like to the children and the families. And if it means going to court and standing right beside them as they're fighting for their families, then that is what it's going to take. And if it means hiring them so that they can lead our organization, then that's what it takes. So Andel gives you this two-week challenge to be unafraid. And the first thing you decide to do in a place of being unafraid is to make the decision to leave. Yes. And you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if your team's going to follow you. You don't know if your families are going to be okay. Yeah. But the big picture long-term reality is that in an unconstrained state, the decision was to leave. And so, so now, you know, Sarah and Deborah came with you and Dell is on your founding board of directors. Daniel, who you mentioned, your neighbor that has volunteered and donated, you know, all of your people are still right there with you, right? Now you're in a place where you're creating together with families. Talk about the vision. So exciting. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just so thrilled and so excited. First of all, I think I spent a lot of time, like almost every night I was just crying because I was just so grateful that everybody who had come alongside was like, hey, we're here with you. I want to kind of like zoom out here for a second and just say that 
in the clear-eyed recognition that, okay, my vision and the vision of the families that I work with can't happen where I am. We can't live out this vision, but I'm afraid, right, to take the leap. And Dell, in his wisdom, says, do what you would do if you're unafraid, and you make the decision. And what you find out is, and I think this is what we always find out, is that when we have the courage to take the leap, the net appears. We're going to be taken care of. When we're doing the right things for the right reasons, when we have the courage to create what's in our imagination, what's in our heart, what's in our soul, what what the world needs, when we decide to create it, everything that we need to do, that's going to show up. Andel's going to show up. Deborah and Sarah's going to show up. Javon and Jeanette and Kula and, right? Everybody's going to show up because the vision is true. And so I say all that to say, like, that's what I see in your story, Sarah, and in your experience of where you are today. But I know that there are people listening to this that are like, man, I, I'm stuck. I'm in a place that's not right for me. Cause I was there too. Like I get it. Like I was there too. And I had to make a choice. And what I hope people hear in your story is that if you do decide to take the leap, as scary as it is, it's going to be okay. So let's talk a little bit specifically about together with families. What are you building and how are you building it with the parents that you've been working with? Yeah, that's exciting. Matt, and you get to be a part of this too. Yeah, I'm so part of the team too. We're Here breaking. I am. That's true. Yes. <laughs> we are so breaking this up. <laughs> I, I am contracted with Together with Families, and I couldn't be more happy about it. So, so one of the things our families have said is they don't want cute little focus groups. They want us to be there right beside them doing the work together. There has to be equity. There has to be accountability to each other. There has to be transparency. And so that's exactly how we're building every part of Together with Families. So our founding members are myself, Deborah Childs, who she's she was impacted by the system herself. She is brilliant. She has a master's degree in business and culinary arts. Like working with her is, is a dream. And she, uh, she needs to tell her story because her story... She's just a remarkable human being filled with compassion, grace, and love mm-hmm. and um, forgiveness. And Dell Jones Foster, so he is the business mind who's putting the business structure around the organization that we need so that we can be a national model and expand. And then Sarah Donegan, she's volunteering her time to help us build the organization as well. And so right now we're working on structuring our bylaws and our board. You know, we talked about it's essential for us to have at least 60 to 70% of people who are on our board who had some sort of systems involvement. I want a board that are people who have been impacted, who understand what the right thing is. And there's so many people who have been impacted by our systems who are just brilliant and successful people. Like that's not hard to find. So we decided about 60 to 70% of our board will be people who have been impacted by systems. That way we can be accountable, not just to brilliant people who, who have a lot of money, but brilliant people who know what it's like to be there. So you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're building in some sense in response to what you've experienced in the past. So one, one way that you're going to do that is with your board right now today, 66% of your board has been impacted by the system and you'll keep building in that range. Yes. And then what, what else, like, what are the other ways in which you're building together with families that's either in response to what you've experienced or, you know, is in response to what parents are saying yeah, so the whole structure of the organization. And one other thing about the board, I was joking with the board and Dell. I was like, for once, I want 
to be threatened to be fired for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was like, I don't care. Like, if you guys threaten to fire me, you and Deborah, like, it at least it'll be for doing the wrong thing because you guys have the right heart. You're the right people. You're smart. Like, I don't want to be through. I'm, I'm sick and tired. You know what I mean? So yeah, as the CEO, I am so proximate to our families. Like they're my friends, but in the future, there might be a different CEO who is not the same as I am. And so how do we ensure that this organization can be true to our values of accountability and transparency to our families? One way was to have executive parent advisors. So the, the CEO which is myself right now, it is surrounded by four executive parent advisors who advise the executive team, including the board. And so everything that we're deciding upon and we're, it's not like a parent advisory committee where you meet four times a year, but they're really contracts to give it input on everything. Like, what are your thoughts on this policy? What is your thought about this? And that's really what I was always doing. So I can tell you everything that was built with Together for Families didn't just come out of my imagination. The imagination part was how to get it done. So you are now designing organizational structures Mm -hmm. from a place of being in proximity, being in relationship, embodying values of love and belonging and joy and fight and courage, right? But one of those structures is you have four people that all have gone through the program and been impacted by systems. But these are four people that are executive advisors to you and the board of directors, So they are um, paid and they're advising on key decisions about organizational policies, board bylaws, programming, funding, all of that kind of stuff. So when you go out on your own and you start an organization that is, is what you're saying, aspiring to holding itself accountable to the people that it serves, right? How are you going to hold yourself accountable to do the right thing? Well, you structure your board in a certain way. You create this advisory team. What else? Like, what are other things that you're doing as you're creating this that are about creating accountability to to what matters most? So, yeah. So one of the roles that we decided upon is a relationship liaison. So working with the families and ensuring if the families have any issues with it, like as they're being served and they don't feel comfortable maybe going to that person that they have an issue with, they can go to the relationship liaison and talk about it and ensure and that relationship liaison can work to rectify that relationship with the employee of Together With Families and that. So it's kind of like- Is this like a like a, a keeper of the culture? It's a keeper of the culture and ensuring that every single family that comes through our doors is treated with the utmost respect, love, and dignity, and that there's no employee ever that is treating our families there. And if they are, they have a place to go. So let me paint let me paint a picture of this. When I was at your your resource center a month ago, a parent came in for the first time. She had a an, an open case. She was at serious risk of her kids being taken away. She was scared, all the different feelings that you can imagine, right? And she walked in and you and Deborah and Sarah met her in a way that I've never seen. Like social services are so transactional. Here's what we have to give. This is what we give you. And it's all based on transaction. You guys were fully relational. This parent came in and within 20 minutes went from like tense shoulders and tight face and you know, um, to relax shoulders, relaxed face, 
you guys were showing this person love in a way that I've never seen in, in a social services setting. Like literally, I've, I've never seen it. This is some of the secret sauce, right? This is what people are looking for. Like if I'm vulnerable and in a moment of need, I need to be treated with love and respect and I need to feel like I belong somewhere. And this is not the experience that people have oftentimes. And so this is what I was watching and it was really incredible to see. But the risk that you run as you start an organization and you grow is that not everybody is going to be oriented that way. So what you're saying is that this relationship liaison or culture keeper, their job is to make sure that anybody that works for Together With Families has that approach that treats people with that level of humanity. Why Together With Families works is not because of its resource center. It's not what you give people. It's how people feel when they're there and how they feel when they leave. That could go away as you expand. Yeah. And that was one thing I was talking to somebody who works in HR and he worked for a larger organization that has 130 employees. And I said to him, I will never hire anybody who is not good at at loving and caring for our families. And he was like, oh, then you're going to have a really small organization. I said, I'd rather have a really small organization than hire people who are going to make my families feel like, here, here's your crumb. Like you, you, you beggars. Like, I don't know how to explain that, but our families feel that way at a lot of organizations sometimes. And so, but Sarah, that guy's that friend of your, his, his point of view, this is, this is back to the constraints of, of existing systems and structures, organizations, cultures, right? Like if you live within these existing structures, you believe that you can only see what's already been seen. It's not true, right? What you're showing us is that you can walk outside of that and build something from imagination. And that's that's possible. And I it makes me wonder about, so what Together With Families is going to do, right? So you guys are going to build back a resource center, but you're going to do so much more than that. You're going to organize and do advocacy work. You're going to have parent navigators, right? You're going to have, like, you're going to expand from one program within an organization to an entire organization that has a set of programs that are all being driven by what parents say they want, need, and desire, right? And it it makes me wonder about like measuring impact. What are the outcomes, right? (laughs) Something that I think about sometimes, I'm curious. Then this is back to like accountability. What if your impact was measured by the depth and quality of the relationships that your organization has with the people that it serves? What do you think about that? I think that would, that would measure our effectiveness and then how those relationships impact families' lives. That is a way for us to measure whether we're doing our job well. Mm-hmm. And then if we're like, okay, we're scoring high on this relationship measure, then we know we're doing our job well. And then seeing how that, doing that part of our job well, impacts families' well being, impacts their lives, impacts resilience, impacts protective factors. I think. I think that's what really makes the impact because it's the relationship that makes the impact on their well-being. Because I over and over again, I didn't understand, you know, our families are telling us they'll go to these other agencies and they'll be like, they'll get thousands of dollars worth of assistance for an eviction or for something else. And they'll be like, nobody's helped us like you helped us. And I was like, what did we do? I think we just gave you like some supplies from the resource center and like a couple gas cards. Like no one's helped. And I was like, why do you say that? And what I've learned is that this relationship that you're talking about, the quality of this relationship empowers people to solve their own problems. 
instead of like, hey, we have all of this assistance we're going to provide for you, which is great. We should be providing that. Our families are feeling hopeful. They're feeling empowered. They're feeling stronger. Yeah, absolutely. And I think organizations that work within systems typically can't do what you're describing because we have funding streams. We have practice models. We have programs that we run. We have evidence-based practices. We have all these different things that say, this is what we have to give and this is what we can give. And so if your needs don't match what we have to give, then we can't meet your needs. That is not how human beings operate, right? And so what you're doing, I think, is showing an alternative path that might be more difficult to pursue because you have to be that creative, I'll get it done no matter what. You have to embody a whole different set of practices than what is normal within, I think, our existing structures. But you are creating a model for us. You're creating an example. You're creating an inspiration of how to lead with people. And so I think this is beyond the the work that you're going to do. I think the example that you're going to show is why I'm excited. Like we said, I I do get to work with you now um, (laughs) and I love it. And I'm excited about that because it does represent an alternative way of doing things. And I wonder where this goes, like where a year, two years, three years, like where does this go next? So we are building our roadmap and our strategic plan for the next three years. And we are going to be the most impactful foster care diversion program ever. So initially with Together for Families, we were only receiving referrals from family children's services in the courts for families who were in imminent risk of foster care. But we are expanding our model to families who are in crisis and who are experiencing poverty through school referrals so that we can prevent families from being unnecessarily investigated, which leads to social isolation and a lot of trauma. If we can address those needs before child welfare becomes entangled in their life, it's better for them. And it reduces ACEs for children and and reduces the amount of trauma that the family goes through. So that's the model. So we're starting with a pilot now and the pilot ends in January. And we're working on a playbook so that we can have a model that can be scaled nationally so that we're providing crisis intervention. So we want to be an alternative to child welfare. So if families in crisis, we can respond immediately. Um, Just like Child Protective Services response, we want to be able to respond in that same kind of manner. So rather than like a mandated reporting scenario to Child Protective Services, a, a, a vision is that together with families is the phone call as opposed to child protective services. And and a family can call themselves. Yeah, that's the vision. And I think there are cases where child protective services would need to be called or we would need to call them. And in those cases, it's true child protection. So allow child protective services to do what, what they're trained to do and allow us to do what the community can do and they can't do, which is the family well-being and really giving families what they need. So but I think what you just said there is really interesting and powerful. So I want to I want to put a spotlight on it that in some cases, yes, we need a child protective services system to keep kids safe because there are instances, right? But what you're saying is that the majority of, of families that are getting wrapped up in CPS and having kids taken away These are issues that the community can, will, and should respond to. And here's the thing. It's super easy to place the blame on Child Protective Services. However, what I have found is we have a cultural problem 
in the United States. Like this is not child protective services. The way that they function is a result of the way that we function as a society. Like they are a part of us. And so we as a community see a mom who's homeless. And instead of being like, let me help you out. Let me take you to my church. Let me do this. Let me call the government (laughs) to investigate you to give you a parenting class. I don't know. Like, Well, as a, you're saying as a society, we're far more geared towards judgment and punishment than we are towards compassion and help. And so CPS is a reflection of our judgment and punishment tendencies. And, and so we can't get mad at the system. We have to look at ourselves. So let me say it this way, Sarah, because as you're, as you're going through all of this, I'm thinking, so Together With Families, it's not really an organization. Together With Families is not a program. Together With Families is a vision for a better world that's grounded in truth, that's grounded in justice, that's grounded in belonging, right? Like seeing people for who they truly are, seeing the humanity in all people, understanding that we're all connected. I mean, this is all of what you're describing right now. So yes, you're going to run programs and you're going to be an organization, but you also have this opportunity to help all of us see ourselves differently, see one another differently, understand how we should be operating in relationship with one another differently. Like to me, that's, that's what together with families embodies as opposed to just simply being another organization that has this great program. It's, it feels so much bigger than that. So this, this theme of sort of like the constraints of systems, right? Mm -hmm. So people that are in it and feeling it now, what advice do you have for them? Like, what, what would you share with people that are kind of bumping up against and feeling the constraints? Yeah, I would say if you want to stand with the victims of the system, you want to stand with people, then you have to be prepared to be hit by the same stones that they're being hit with. And maybe you will lose your tenure and maybe you will lose some money. But if you do it for the right reasons, like you said, there will be people there to catch you. Yeah. So in some sense, you know, it's it's the courage to act in the face of fear, but it's also the willingness to make sacrifice. Yeah. So, okay. So this show is, it's a way for me to stay in my own process of mm. becoming the person that 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 I need to be, that who I truly am. So if this is part of my own process, then I want to ask you advice that you have for me mm. as I continue <laughs> to go forward. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for me? Or even like, what conversation should I be having? Who should I be listening to? Take any one of those and feel free to share some wisdom with me. I'll try. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> um, um, so just knowing you as a person, like you are extraordinarily compassionate. You're kind. You want to do the right thing. And you're connected to so many different people. And you're connected with so many people who have a lot of of power and influence and then people who are trying to have power and influence. But I would say, hold yourself accountable to the people who don't have power and influence. You need to be proximate with them. You need to be listening to them. And you need to be holding yourself transparent to them and accountable to them. Because then they will help guide you and ensure that when, as you grow your business and as you become more and more successful, cause you will, that you don't lose sight of yeah. why and who and what you're doing. 
and not all opportunities are good opportunities. Sherry Kraft told me, not all money is good money from smart from the start. She said to me, not all money is good money. And I've sat with that. And I, I, and I've decided like, I don't, not all money is good money. Not all grants are good grants. And so uh, that's the advice I'd give you the, the, the same exact advice. Not all money is good money and be accountable and transparent to the people you are working for. You're working for parents. Okay. So, so last question before we wrap up here, what does proximity mean to you? Proximity to me does not mean being close to somebody. It does not mean listening to somebody. It does not mean hearing their stories, reading their books. It means learning from the powerless, like learning the truth, being in proximity and trying to learn from the people that you are supposed to be serving and supposed to be working for and with. It's not enough to read their books. It's not enough to have a, a, a cute little focus group yeah. with them. You need to intentionally want to learn the truth from them instead of taking your tr- your truth hmm. to them. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And, you know, just to call back something that you said that our, our systems are a reflection of us. Mm, yes. So if we want our systems to change, we have to change. To be proximate is not to be close. To be proximate is to be in relationship deeply enough that that relationship changes us. And it takes a little dose of humility every day to learn, right? Because learning is going to change us. That should be the result of learning is that we grow and we change. And we have to have enough humility to let that happen. Yeah. And we say it every day. When I have families come into the resource center, all the time I ask them, I say, hey, are we doing okay? Like, are we yeah. like, is there any way we can improve? Is there something we should be adding to our programming? Is there something we should be doing differently? Can you teach me? And I genuinely want to know because I know that if they teach me, we are going to have the most impactful foster care diversion program that has ever been built. And if we just keep doing what everybody else does, we are just going to have what everybody else has. That's right. That's why Together With Families is not just an organization. It's a movement. It's a vision. And it, it's going to help us all change. So hopefully that's, that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you. As we wrap up this episode with Sarah, one of my takeaways from her story and her process is that she's a problem solver. She sees where the system is breaking down and where the injustices exist for parents. And she goes straight there to solve problems. So on the next episode, we're going to talk to Ryan O'Donnell, a former foster parent and like Sarah, a problem solver. You're going to meet your dad and, you know, never forget that moment when he met him in person for the first time. And it was, it was honestly, it was like, that's the hallmark moment that foster parents, I think, want to be a part of. And I was like, yep, he belongs with this guy. They belong together. What can we do to be as supportive as we can of reunification? Thanks to Michael Osborne at 14th Street Studios for producing the show. Production assistance from Evan Scherer and original music from Christian Heigis. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.